What an encouraging message in Isaiah 60. It begins, verse 1, Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon thee. That's revival. That's revival when God works. The purpose of revival. Why do we want it? What is it? How will we know if it comes? We need to know the purpose of revival to be able to pray intelligently, to ask God to send a gracious move of God. The last part of verse 2 is the text. We'll work from chapter 60, verse 2. The Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. Revival is God arising. Of course, that is in a picture in human terms to us. When you start to work, you arise, you get up, you get at it, you begin to work. And what it's saying this after the moral blackness and darkness in Isaiah, most of Isaiah 59, God promises he's going to rise up and he's going to work and he's going to send forth light. What are the purposes of revival? Let me give you a few from this passage this morning. First of all, to subdue Satan. To subdue Satan. Verse 2, our text, the land was covered by gross darkness. Now, there's always been sin. Every society. But certainly from my lifetime, our land has got darker. There's gross darkness covering the land. Things you never imagined. I don't need to go into them. We all know how far even this province of ours have gone and this nation of ours. And we have to say, yes, there's always been a darkness of sin, but gross darkness has come in. Just as in the nation of Judah historically under King Manasseh during his reign, Isaiah prophesied, there were the murder of children, but like today, isn't it? There are all kinds of evil sins. So gross darkness. And in chapter 59, if you read it, there's a whole litany. In verse 3, if you look quickly, murder, hands defiled with blood. Verse 4, they speak lies. What a dishonest age we live in. Tongues muttering perverseness. That's immoral talk. The media. The immorality. The Lord's name taken in vain. That's the day we live in. Verse 7, their feet run to evil. Verse 9, they walked in darkness. They're like the blind. In verse 10, groping for the wall. Verse 12, the transgressions were multiplied before God. That was the state of Judah. And it's the state of our land today. And here's a very sad verse. Look at verse 16. And God saw there was no man. And God wondered. Not amazing. God wondered there was no intercessor. God wondered God's people aren't praying. God's people are not concerned. I wonder, have we become used to the dark? It's not sometimes happen in our day-to-day life. You go into a dark room, you can hardly see anything. And then you begin to get a little bit accustomed to the darkness. Have we as God's people been accustomed to the darkness? Have we become desensitized to the sins all around us and in our own life? Do we just ignore the darkness now? 
That's what's happening to God's people. To God's people. How tragic. And then you have this great verse 19 of Psalm 59. The enemy shall come in like a flood. Satan had come like a flood this morning. The news coming up, 10 o'clock, I listened to it. And it mentioned Pakistan. 119 people, I think it was, have died already. When the rains come and the floods come like a torrent, there's devastation. And that's what had happened. Satan had come and used his emissaries to cause devastation to God's work and God's testimony and righteousness in the land. The enemy has come in like a flood. I think all of us would have to say that's right. If you're my age or even a bit younger, you could say, yes, our land is so changed for the worse. Satan has come in like a flood. What do we do about it? Do we just tut-tut the latest horror of darkness and sin? Oh, we must do more than tut-tut. We must call for God to arise. We need to be praying. And revival subdues Satan. How? In chapter 60, verse 1, the light. The light. God sends light. And you know light chases away the darkness. So God arises to chase away, to subdue Satan. And in verse 19 of chapter 59, he lifts up a standard against the enemy. Against the enemy. My wife and I were in Wales for a couple of weeks visiting my daughter, her husband, he's secretary of the Baptist Church there, Alfred Place Baptist, late uh, pastor a while ago, still alive preaching, Jeff Thomas, for over 50 years. We got to know him very well. He would talk about the revival that they had in 1859 in Wales. They had one just like Ulster had. Amazing to hear the stories. And this time we're there, we actually stayed in a place called Devil's Bridge. And that's a great site of revival in 1859. David, or David, we would say Morgan, came from a church beside there. He was greatly used in that revival. It was unusual in that sense, the Welsh 1859 revival. For God raised up one man who seemed to be the main instrument. He said it just came upon him one day. And God began to move. And a year and a half later, he still preached the same sermon. still sought to, But it wasn't that move of God as there had been. But well, it's amazing to read and to visit some of those sites. He preached in Aberystwyth in the beginning of 1859. It's not a very large town even to this day. Ten public houses were closed after he preached. Ten of them. You'll read about near Devil's Bridge. There was a fight outside a public house while he and another minister were walking by. And David Morgan said, let's get down and pray. And he began to pray. They opened their eyes. Everybody had gone, including the publican. <laughs> it all disappeared. Amazing what had happened. Absolutely amazing. At the court assizes throughout much of Wales, the judges would put on white gloves as they did in Ulster in those days. What did that mean? There were no cases to try. <laughs> Can you believe that? There were no cases for the judges to try. Why? Because Satan had been subdued. That's what happens when revival comes. There's a great change. But not only that, look at chapter 60, verse 21. Here's another purpose why we need revival. Verse 21 of chapter 60. Thy people also shall be all righteous. 
revival, God arises to sanctify the saints. Now, as a saint, we just simply mean a believer. We ought to live saintly, but a saint is just someone who trusts Christ as Savior. Now, think of those words, verse 21. Now, people shall be all righteous. Now, who are these people? Well, the Lord's people are those who have come to realize that I have no righteousness of my own, that all my righteousness in the sight of a holy God is as filthy rags. That's how God looks at my very best, what I think holiest moments and of yours. And we come to Christ and we realize that God accepts Christ's righteousness in my place and that Christ died for my sins. And therefore, when you trust Christ, you're declared righteous before God. Can you say that this morning? I know I'm only a sinner. Apostle Paul, years after he was converted, he said, Christ Jesus come into the world to save sinners of whom I used to be. No, of whom I am. Believer, do you realize this morning the depravity that is in our hearts? Paul did. But for the grace of God, we're only sinners. But if a Christian is someone who's trusting in the righteousness of Christ, and I cannot do any righteous work in order to take away sins or be justified before God, what does this verse mean then? Thy people shall be all righteous. Well, we call imputed righteousness that is put to our account when we trust Christ as Savior. God looks upon us not on our sin, but looks upon us as in Christ. That's imputed, put to our account. That verse 21 is talking about imparted. For whom the Lord saves, he sanctifies. That means more and more someone who is truly converted wants to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. To live a more and more holy life. And revival is God causing believers to look into our own lives and see where we failed and sins that maybe weren't bothering us. When the light shines, those sins convict us. You can imagine going out one day, maybe you're going to some hotel for a dinner or whatever, and you're wearing a suit, let's say, men, and a car splashes you, and you're, oh, not too bad. <laughs> you rub it. But the nearer you get to the hotel and the big lights, you be, oh, this is worse than I thought. <laughs> and you know, that's, that's like the Christian life. The closer you get to the light, closer you get to God, he, the light, reveals more and more sins in our life that we need to forsake. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 said this, Believer, cleanse yourselves. You say, but hold on. It's only the blood of Christ can cleanse our sins. Yes, from the penalty of sin to make me acceptable to God. But Paul was writing about that practical putting away of sins. Cleanse yourselves from the filthiness of the sins of the flesh and of the spirit. That's what sanctification means. Not in order to be saved, but to put away those things that are displeasing to God. The sins of the flesh. Oh, and I know we can think and bemoan the sins of society. And we can make a list of what we think sins and we may even pat ourselves on the back and say, well, I don't do those. But Paul says the sins of the Spirit, that's our attitudes, envy, pride, backbiting. Jonathan Goforth was a great missionary to China. He came from Canada. It was a great name for a missionary, isn't it? Goforth. 
you should read the book. Remember Dr. Douglas sent me years ago and began to teach missionary principles, get the students to refer to that book. Anyway, tell them about it. Great missionary. There was, he was to China. There was a move of God and a revival in the area where he was working. Do you know the, where they did it to? Jonathan Goforth was then the, or the area leader of that missionary society. There'd been a meeting of missionaries and a new missionary who had just come disagreed with Jonathan Goforth and spoke up. And Jonathan Goforth wasn't too pleased, so he rebuked him sharply. And that night when Jonathan tried to pray, couldn't. And at night he went over to that new missionary's house. Remember, he was the faith leader. Who did that man think he was speaking up? Just arrived. He went over, he said, please forgive me. I never should have spoken to you in that way. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. That's the day they did the revival to. God's people shall be all righteous, a forsaking of sin. But there's a positive righteousness. Shall be all the... Sanctification is two-sided. It's dying more unto sin. It happens when God arises and Christ becomes more real. We forsake our sins. Ah, but there's a positive righteousness. We begin to live right. You see, all revivals in history... The church of God began when they were revived to reach out to the needy. Orphanages, help. You think of Spurgeon, home for the aged, orphanages and so on. The destitute. There was a reaching out. There has to be a positive righteousness. Good works. You see, we're not antinomians. Long term, but all that means is this. Uh, we don't believe that, oh, I'll just make a profession that I'm trusting Christ and then live as you like. And I don't believe that for one minute. I believe God preserves his people. But those he saves, there'll be evidences in the life. Evidences in the life. Have you ever wondered why it is that most Christians can quote Ephesians 2? You know it, verse 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should boast. Tremendous, isn't it? We preach that. Ought to preach it to ourselves. Because we all fail. We preach the gospel. But did you ever, can you quote the next verse? Without works. For, because... We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus on two good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Don't finish. Don't finish with we're saved by faith and not of works. Continue, as Paul continued. In other words, the gospel is this. Here's salvation. It's by grace. Nothing you can do to be saved. If you're here without Christ, there's nothing you can do. It's by grace. It's simply through faith. But it's on two good works. In other words, we have to be honest. If you profess faith in Christ and you profess that you've trusted him and you are not performing good works in your life, you know what you need? You need to be saved. Paul wrote to Titus, a young preacher, read that book, underline, maintain good works. Be ready for good works. Titus, watch out for that member that professes their great experiences with the Lord and unto every good work they're reprobate. 
They talk, they talk, but there's no evidence in their life. No evidence. First Peter, Peter wrote to Christians who have been persecuted and lied about and mocked. Have you ever had that happen to you as a Christian, maybe in work or in school? And they laugh at What do you do? First Peter 2 and 12, you know what Peter said you do? Pray against them, get even with them, seek. No, no, he says, listen, by your good works, by your good works, that they may glorify God. What do you do when someone persecutes you for being a Christian? You say, Lord, show me some good work that I can do for that person. That's just what the Bible says. I could go on and give you other examples. The book of James. Book, book of James. It's, it's that obedience. It's, it's that works that teaches us. See, don't, don't imagine revival only has to do with the pulpit. Don't imagine that revival, oh, that that's when God and the Spirit will come upon the preachers. And of course, that is the main thing. That is the importance, preaching Christ. And we're just set back as spectators. Nothing for us to do. No, no. Yes, we pray for revival in our land. We pray for revival in our churches. But Lord, revive me. Revive me and my family, in my workplace. In my neighborhood, revive me. You see, you can pray, Lord, arise upon Ulster. Oh God, arise upon Ulster and subdue Satan and chase back the awful sins of our province. Ah, but you to pray, Lord, revive me. Help me to forsake sin. Lord, show me things that I should be doing for thee. Those works, and it's not, it's not me, it's the Holy Spirit working in us to show us works that he has ordained that we should do. I love the story. I love reading Harry Arnside's book of illustrations. He got permission to tell this story very quickly, what it is. There was a week of meetings, and the pastor, the preacher, spoke on restitution. Sometimes believers, you need to make restitution, someone you've wronged. And a man came up to him after the service he said, listen, I, I'm a member here. I'm involved in the church. But as you preached, I realized that I've been a thief. I work in the boat builders. Their special copper nails won't rust. And I'm building a boat at home. And I've been taking a pocket full of nails. And sure, I said, sure, the boss will never miss them. What's a few nails? And anyway, he doesn't pay me enough. <laughs> but as you've preached, I realize I'm just a thief. But you know, my boss has no time for Christianity. He won't come to church. I've invited him. He mocks Christians. Says it's all a farce. I couldn't go to him and tell him what I've done. Preacher urged him to make sure he's right with God. God had sorted out. Now he was a believer. He was a Christian. Preacher said during that week, the man looked miserable as everybody was singing. <laughs> And one night the man had a big grin as he was singing and he came to the preacher. You'll never guess what happened. Of course the preacher knew what happened. Not the details. He said, I could stand it no longer. And I went to my boss and I said, I'm ashamed of what I've done. I've let my Lord and Savior down. I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. And I'm ashamed of what I've done. I've been taking home pockets of nails. Whatever you want me to pay back, I'll pay it back. If you want to sack me, it's what I deserve. I'm so ashamed. 
And this is in Harry Arnside's book. You can read it. He says, you'll never guess what happened, preacher. He looked at me for a long time. His name happened to be George. He says, George, I used to think you were one of these religious hypocrites I meet. But any preaching that would cause a worker to come back and confess <laughs> that they've stolen nails, I never heard of that before. I would love a to come along with you sometime and listen to the preaching in your church. What was happening? God's saint was realizing his sin, getting right with God. That's what happens in revival. That's why in Harland and Wolf, I'm sure I don't need to repeat it with a congregation like this. I was brought up in Belfast, used to see was it 20, 30,000 in the 60s when I was young, shipyard men coming home. And way back, just 100 years ago, this very year, W.P. Nicholson, so many men were converted. Harlan and Wolf had to build big sheds, the revival sheds, for men bringing home tools that stolen. <laughs> that happened, that's in history, read it. Documented by secular newspapers. In fact, Harland and Wolf Shipyard had to say, if you've stolen tools, don't bring them back with no room to put them. It happened. It's not a fairy story. That's what happens in revival. God's people get righteous. And that leads me to the next one. When God's people get right, righteous, you know what happens? The unsaved sit up and take notice. And God arises to save sinners, to save sinners. That's the purpose of revival. When God, look at verse 3 of chapter 60. The Gentiles shall come. Those were the enemies to thy light. It's just talking about God putting light through his church. And the light shining out. In verse 5. The abundance of the sea shall be converted. The isles, verse 9. In other words, great missionary outreach. But I love verse 8. Look at it. This is tremendous. Who are these that fly as a cloud and the doves to their windows? You see, he's using the picture of a murmuration. To be honest, I didn't know what that was for years ago. Then I was preaching on birds along Sirius. I'm sure you've all seen a murmuration. You mightn't have known that, what it's called. Have you ever seen in the sky, it could be hundreds, it could be thousands of birds, all usually swallows, and they're all going, as it were, in unison. You wonder how they can all fly together in a cloud and so on. The experts that looked it up said the largest scientists reckon in the United Kingdom was six million Six million birds all in a cloud. Can you see what the Holy Spirit is saying here? When God arises and the light comes and the church of God gets right with him and God's people begin to live right, you know what happens? Sinners, don't just come in the ones and twos. They come in a great cloud. Acts 2, 3,000. Turn over chapter 2. 5,000. 1859 revival, the numbers. I was looking at a book. I was asked to write a forward to it some years ago by Newton Abbey School. It was, I give a biography of Earl of Roden. Maybe you know of him. Tullymore Forest Park was his home. Uh, and he traveled down to the west of Ireland. Ackle Island and all that region in 1851 to see the great revival that had taken place. And so these letters were republished. Do you know in one Roman Catholic diocese, 10,000 Roman Catholics had been converted? 
That's the early 1850s. Ackle Island, have you ever been there on your holidays? Great revival there. It's amazing. It's almost a forgotten revival, wasn't it? Forgotten revival. And I, I know that Reverend Jonathan Crane and others have been saying, oh God, do it again in the south. <laughs> and we'd have to say up here, do it here. Do it here too. We've heard of 1859, the numbers. We've heard of 100 years ago, W.P. Nicholson. I think of the Shankill Road. It's closed now. Presbyterian Church called Shankill Mission. I remember it well, passing it and so on there. Bottom of the Shankill. Do you know W.P. had a mission there? Now, it was either late 1921 or early 1922. Do you know there were 2,000 professions of faith? Now that's talking about just one congregation in that area. Hundreds of churches, Presbyterian churches, there was another churches too, reported the great numbers. I think of Wales where we were, and to hear the great numbers were converted there. In Aberystwyth itself, there were 400 members added to the Calvinistic Methodist Church. You see, God is arising. Sometimes we're so parochial in our province, and of course I love our wee land. Of course we do. But God is working around the world. I think of South Korea. I was there on two occasions. With two different students in our college come over from South Korea. Do you know 150 years ago there wasn't one believer? And today South Korea sends out more reformed evangelical Protestant missionaries than any country in the world except the USA. You go to Singapore and see some of the work. Brazil, have you ever read about Brazil over the last 30 to 40 years? The millions in Brazil? Or Colombia? My sister's been there, oh, 50 some years, over 50 years now, laboring. 56 or so. Her husband, although he's 80 some now, pastoring of a church, 250 to 300, mostly converted Roman Catholics, but he works in my nephew in a printing press, they call it. I visited a few years ago, 150 full-time workers, six days a week, 24 hours a day, publishing Christian literature in Spanish and Portuguese. Sometimes we think God is doing nothing around the world. He is. God is moving. I know we need to pray, oh Lord, do it here. Do it here. Well, oh God, arise. Look at this uh, next point. Satan is subdued. Saints are sanctified. Souls are saved. But look at chapter 59, verse 21. I'll just be brief on this one. Chapter 59, verse 21. As for me, the covenant, you see it here. My words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed. We need revival to safeguard our seed. Our children and our children's children. I don't need to labor this. You think of things like the transgenderism. By the way, Young people, I'm sure you're smart enough to know there's no such thing as transgender. Yes, there's a, sadly a mental illness. That's not to criticize. We live in a fallen world and young people can be so mixed up. I could go on telling many stories those went through treat and now they've realized what fools they were, mistakes. There's not an actual, it's an illness of the brain. It's a mental problem. 
but it's been forced upon our children. All this agenda been forced to rethink and to accept all this nonsense that's common sense. There's no such thing as transgender. I'll just prove it to you. You see, the scientists are able to tell you somebody committed a crime 60, 70 years ago and they find a bit of bone. They're able to tell you, was it a male or female? <laughs> you ever think about that? Things are so odd. And yet people are swept up. We worry about our children. We worry about our grandchildren. Oh, listen, we need revival for the sake of our children and our children's children that God would arise and put his word into our children. But I want you to come to the main reason for revival. Yes, Satan subdued, saints are sanctified, sinners are saved, our children are seed, are safeguarded. But the primary purpose, look at verse 1. Arise, shine, the glory. See that? The glory of the Lord. Verse 2, his glory shall be upon thee. Go through other verses, chapter 59, 19, his glory. 60, 19, the Lord thy glory. The primary purpose of revival is not simply to see people converted, though that would be wonderful. It is, not only, it is greater than seeing God's people becoming more righteous, more holy. Every revival is a revival of holiness, but it's greater than that. It's greater than that. Yes, greater than even seeing our children and children's children preserved and safeguarded from the sins. The purpose of revival is God's glory. That's the purpose. That God will be glorified. And how is he glorified? How is he glorified? Through the preaching of Christ. Through the preaching of Christ. Look at chapter 59 and verse 19 again. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard. What's the standard? Don't think of it as simply preaching the truth. It's Christ the truth. Christ is the standard. How do I know? Because back in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah prophesied of the day when he, the Messiah, will come. And he will be the ensign. It's the same word, the standard. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And it's about his atonement. His atonement, the standard is Christ and Calvary. That's why I sang, there's a royal banner. That's where God is glorified. Where do you see the glory of God at its clearest? Well, wife and I saw that beautiful rainbow and you say, oh, the heavens declare the glory of God. But it's at Calvary. For there you see his character, his holiness, his judgment, his own son bearing the wrath of our sin. There you see his love. There you see his grace. God's glory is set forth at his greatest at the atoning work where God can be declared holy and yet he can take guilty sinners like you and I and look upon us as if we'd never sinned. That's the glory of God. The glory of God is preaching Christ. And his atonement. I read again when I was over in Wales. The story of David Morgan during the revival. And at the church near Devils and Bridge. It's only a little village. Church was packed. The minister described it. He was preaching. But all of a sudden he stopped. And he cried out. The sin of Wales is great. And then this minister said. Many young people who were in the gallery. And he said every head dropped. People were broken. 
The sin of Wales is great, but the atonement of Christ is greater. Many souls were converted that night. On the way home, minister walking with him near midnight by the time they dealt with souls, he said, didn't we have blessed meetings today, David? After a pause, he said, yes. And the Lord would give us great things if only he could trust us. He says, well, what do you mean if only he could trust us? If only he could trust us not to try and steal the glory for ourselves. And he stopped and he paused. And this minister described, he cried out at midnight, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name be all the glory. God gets the glory in revival. Christ is the standard. Maybe you don't know Christ as Savior. Well, I take it you probably know the story where Moses took a brass serpent and put it upon a pole. People were dying with the snake bites. And it went like this. If you look at that serpent on the pole, you'll be healed. Pole is the same word standard. In chapter 59, 19, exactly the same word. Centuries later, Christ talked to a very religious man who knew he wasn't ready for heaven. Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can this be? As Moses lifted up the serpent as a standard in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, Christ is the standard. When revival comes, Christ and his work on Calvary becomes the main thing. The gospel is lifted up. Oh, I wish I had time, but my time is gone. You read Exodus 17 about the rod that Moses lifted. We often take that. You remember lifted as a picture of prayer. It's much more than that. For that rod was the rod that the plagues. Remember Moses? It's the rod that smote the rock. Christ is the rock of ages smitten for us. What Moses was holding up and the soldiers looked at it and of course he was praying. It's a symbol like a standard. He was holding it up like a standard. It's a picture of Christ on Calvary. See it all goes back to Christ. Oh we need to pray for revival so that the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified will be lifted up and when he's lifted up, then Satan will be subdued. Souls will be saved. Yes. The saints of God will be sanctified. Will die more and more unto sin, live more and more unto righteousness. And our seed will be safeguarded. Oh, that he will send us a great revival. Let's turn to 644 in closing. And make it a prayer, a prayer of our heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Written by an Ulster man. If you ever get any of his books second hands, get them. He was used greatly in revival. He studied revivals before the war and after the war. Wrote about it, taught about it. J. Edwin Orr, 
and experience great moves of God under his ministry. Search me, O God, and know 